Good morning, Sterling. Oh man, it's wonderful to be here with you this morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joe. I'm one of the elders here at SBC, and it's a privilege to bring to you God's Word this morning. Would you please open up your Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 25 to 35. That is John chapter 6, verses 25 to 35. And over the next several weeks, we are going to be looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. And what these statements are going to show us is that Jesus is not just some distant deity. He's not just a figure of history. He's not just a wise teacher that we would be wise to listen to. Uh, But rather, what are we going to find in these I am statements is we are going to find out that Jesus is the living God. He is the great I am. These statements are going to tell us without a shadow of a doubt that there is no substitute for Jesus. Jesus is the only way that your sins can be forgiven. Jesus is the only way that you can have grace, that you might live the life you need to live. Jesus is the only way that you can have the fullness and abundance of life. What a sad reality it is that we can live active and full lives, but come to the end of it and realize that nothing and none of it would last. But what we find is that there is no leader, no author, no organization, no religious discipline that we can do that that can give us what Jesus can only give us. And what these I am statements also show is that it's in the present tense. It's not just the past. It's not just the future, but they're for the present. And so Jesus is for us now. He gives us all we need now. We can glean and get from him things now, not just the future and the past. And so these I am statements are relevant to us. And so my prayer for you as I've been preparing uh, for the sermon is that we would be people who would grasp onto these truths, apply them by faith, and then find out that we are more steadfast, more in love with Jesus, and more fruitful for him as we look to him daily for all that we need. But the significance of these I am statements really, uh, we grasp it properly when we realize that it stems back to a question that Moses asks Jesus all the way back in Exodus 3. You'll know the story. Moses is uh, born uh, into a, a really rough time. Pharaoh is killing all the young Israelite male boys under the age of two. And so Moses' mother puts him in a basket, sends him down a stream. He miraculously gets found by someone in Pharaoh's household who raises him up for 40 years. He grows up as an Egyptian, wise, learning, growing. And 40 years into his life, he sees an Egyptian and an Israelite are fighting. Uh, uh, Moses goes and kills uh, the uh, Egyptian. And as a result, he has to flee from Uh, Pharaoh's household. And so he flees into the wilderness to live amongst the Midianites. And he is uh, there for 40 years as a shepherd. And I just want to pause there for a moment. There are some of you who might feel that you're at the end of your life, Moses, and uh, your time has come to hand over the reins to young people. But I just want to say that uh, God used an 80-year-old. That's when God calls Moses. And some of us are a bit young and we're thinking, when the Lord going to use us? Well, God used 80 years worth of training for Moses before he was ready. But at the end of 80 years, Moses is walking and he sees a burning bush. And it's burning, but it's not burning up. And so he walks to the burning bush to inquisitively find out what's happening. And God is there. God's presence is there. 
And God and Moses start to have a conversation and they chat and, and God says, I have seen the suffering of Israel. I've heard their cries and Moses, I am going to send you to go tell the people of Israel that I'm going to liberate them. I'm going to send you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But after much convincing, he says, well, I'm going to go to them and they're going to ask which God sent me. What is the name of the God who sent me? And in, Ex- and in Exodus 3, what we see is God replies and says, I am who I am. He gives the name of God. It's the Hebrew word that we would pronounce, Yahweh, as a significant name. And Warren Worsby tells us what it means. He says, the name conveys the constant of absolute, a concept of absolute being the one who is and whose dynamic presence works on our behalf. It conveys the meaning of I am who and what I am and I do not change. I am here with you and for you. This beautiful name of God as he shares this name to a people who are suppressed and, and in a ton of pain. It would have brought so much hope to them. But the, the I am statements hold a lot more weight for us when we realize Jesus is claiming and saying, I am the great I am. In the Greek, when Jesus speaks, he says, ego aim, which is in the Greek, it's, it's a double emphasis. He says, I, I am the bread of life. He just doesn't say I am, he says, I, I am. He places a double emphasis there for us to realize the magnitude of what he is saying and has spiritual significance for us because not only is he the living God, but he attaches to it statements that help us to know how can we relate to this living God? How can we enjoy him? How can we know him? What, what it means for us to, to be a people who are to love him and go after him, and it will show what he will do for us and who we can become through him. And so in these statements that we're going to be looking over the next seven weeks, we're going to see Jesus is the great I am, and he is all that we need. So have that in mind this morning as we dive in to our first section in John chapter 6, verses 25 to 35. We are going to look at the statement this morning, I am the bread of life. It goes as follows. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, for the food uh, that uh, endures, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you that true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he whom comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall not hunger, and whoever... uh, uh, 
whoever, sorry, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So this I am statement that we are considering this morning cuts straight to the heart of the issue of where is life? What is life? Where can we get it? So this crowd are longing for it. They are trying to define what life is. They're trying to find where can they get this life. And they think that they might just have found it with this person, Jesus. You've got to realize that Jesus is a young teacher. He's a young prophet. He is a miracle worker, and there's a ton of excitement around him. The crowd who are having this conversation with Jesus this day would have heard of the stories of him turning water into wine at a wedding. Now, if you want to gather a crowd, learn how to do that. Many people will come flocking to you if you can turn water into wine. And so the crowd starts to come, and not only does he turn water into wine, but he also he's this great healer. He has taken people and made the, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. And there would have been those in the crowd who knew people that had happened to or had happened to them themselves. They would have experienced this miracle worker, Jesus. They would have heard of the story, as we see earlier in the Gospel of John, of the official son who was ill, but yet Jesus just spoke a word. And in where the son was, he was healed at the same time. They would have heard of the, the story of the man who had been at the pool for 38 years and unable to get into the water in time to be healed. But Jesus walked past and said, get up and walk, and he was restored. They would have not only heard about his miracles and his healing, but they would have also heard about his authority over the demonic. That Jesus just simply spoke and the demonic listened to him. Not only did he have authority over demons, but this young Jesus, his teacher, also preached and taught with authority that was different to everybody else, different to the scribes. It would have cut to their core. He was captivating. He, he applied it to them. But also what they would have known, and every single person in this crowd that we hear has this conversation just the day before, had been a part of one of the most incredible miracles Jesus had 5,000 men plus women and children on top of that number hungry before him. And he takes bread and he breaks it. He takes uh, five loaves and two fish and he breaks it, blesses it and prays to God and thanks him for it. And then distributes it to this massive crowd. They all eat until they're full and then they are left overs as well. And as they see this, they think, well, this is something special. And they come to Jesus and they, they want to make him king. They, these are people that have uh, left their jobs, their homes, their livelihood in order to follow this Jesus. And, and they are willing to reorientate their life around him and make him king. But Jesus slips away before they can do so. Night happens and they wake up. And uh, they go look for Jesus, and they have a conversation with him. But what we haven't read this morning, there's 70, chapters in this, uh, 70 verses in this chapter, so I wanted to spare you that long read. But what we don't read this morning is that by the time we get to the end of the conversation, the thousands that are seeking uh, Jesus are reduced to a dozen, just the twelve. And that, that's, that's devastating, right? If you've got a ministry and you have thousands that are turned into a dozen, that's Things haven't gone well. I think I might be fired if you all left and never came back. Things have not gone well here. And what has happened? Why has it happened? The, the crowd at the end starts to say things, well, oh, this is too hard to hear. Who can listen to these things? Verse 66 says they turned away and never walked with Jesus again. What has happened? 
This crowd who is looking for life, Jesus offers them a definition of life that they just can't accept. And as he offers them this definition of life that they can't accept, he goes to the issues of their heart and he wants to show them what is wrong. And he goes to places they don't want him to go. He asks them to leave things they don't want to leave. And they say to him, actually, we can't do this. And they turn away and walk away. But my friends, what's important for us to realize is that Jesus does this. He challenges the issues of the heart, not because he wants to be particularly difficult, not because he wants to just uh, be strict or uh, be silly. But as we see in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus does it because he has compassion upon the crowd. Mark chapter 6, verses, six, uh, Mark chapter six verses 34 says, when he, uh, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and, they had compassion, and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. It's because Jesus looks at this crowd who are so close to life, yet are so far from it. And he has compassion and he wants them to get it. And so he goes to the issues that they have so that they might change. And he points out their things to them and they can't accept it. Now, I tell you that this morning because what you're going to realize is while this is an event that took place 2,000 years ago, and, and while this crowd might not be as sophisticated as we are, if I want to uh, be so bold to say, what we're going to realize is that the human heart hasn't changed over 2,000 years. And while the crowd might have these issues, as we hear Jesus speak today, we're going to realize he's speaking to us. He's speaking to our hearts, but I want you to feel as your heart, hopefully by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, starts to challenge something in our hearts that it's not because he's being nasty, but because he loves you and he wants to give you life. So this crowd come to Jesus, they, they seek him and they find him. And they, say, they, they realize this wonderful miracle is probably pointing to something special. But what they don't do is they don't come to him and say, Jesus, Jesus, we, we have found out who you are. We, we realize that you are the one that we need. They come and say, we want our breads. We want our breads. But, but what's important for us to note here is that this crowds, as they talk to Jesus and Jesus talks to them, are, are, are talking about a certain event. Now, if you've ever been hanging out with some friends who've watched a new series that you haven't yet watched, and they are talking about it flat out, you can feel rather out, can't you, and confused. You can understand the words that they're saying, but you have no clue what they're referring to. In a very similar way, Jesus and the crowd are talking about a certain event, and if you don't know what that event is, you're going to feel a bit confused by what is going on. So what is this event that they are talking about? Well, it also happens in the book of Exodus. Moses has had the burning bush experience. He has gone and told Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh has said no. God has sent 10 plagues. Uh, Pharaoh gives in. The people of God head out across the Red Sea miraculously. They go into the wilderness. They praise God the first day for the, the amazing work he has done. Three days later, four days later, they start to get hungry. And when the hungry people are around, if you're anything like me, you start to get grumpy. And they started to get grumpy and started to moan. And they started to say things like, God has led us out here to kill us. God has taken us out of here to, be, to, to uh, let us die in the wilderness. He, he doesn't care for us. It was better for us in Egypt than to be here. Ridiculous. 
And so they, Moses in, goes to God and mediates on their behalf and says, please, can you feed these people? And God does in his grace. He sends down bread from heaven uh, called manna. And he feeds them that day. But not just for that day, he sends again the next day. And he will do so six days of the week. And on the sixth day, he will give them double portions so that on the seventh, they could have already collected the food and they could rest on the Sabbath. And he doesn't do this for a week. He doesn't do this for a month. He doesn't do this for a year. But Moses, uh, God gives to the people of Israel for 40 years that he feeds them every day. Now, track with me here. A couple of hundred to a thousand years later, prophets start to arrive and they say there's a Messiah, a Christ who is to come and he's going to bring with him bread from heaven. Fast forward a couple of hundred years after that, you have a crowd, about 5,000 big, in the middle of nowhere, like a wilderness. They are hungry after about three days of not eating. And here's a Jesus who comes and breaks bread of five loaves and two fishes able to feed them. And they, they see this and they go, this must be the one that God is talking about. And so they come to Jesus. They seek him out. They look for him. But they do not say to him, you are the one who, who has come to save us from our sins. They look at their time and say, Jesus, it's breakfast. And we're a little hungry. Actually, we've been looking for you for quite a t- some time. It's more like brunch. You're a bit late. Where's our bread? And Jesus looks at the crowd in verses 26 and 27. Let's read it together. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. And this is where the conflict begins, and this is where Jesus starts to challenge and exposes things in their hearts. He exposes three things. The first thing that he exposes is he exposes their need. Now, I've put on the screen, he exposes our need because I want us to remember that he's exposing things in our hearts as well. He exposes things in their heart. He says to them, you think you need food, but you need something else. You think you have this need, but I'm telling you there's a bigger issue within your heart that you need. And, and you see, in the Greek, there are, there are two words that are used for life. The first is bios, and the second is zoe. Bios in Greek has material things. It's physical things. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's material stuff. So example, in Luke chapter 8, uh, what we have is that we have the woman who touches the end of Jesus' garment, and she's healed after 12 years of bleeding. It says there in Luke chapter 8 that she used all her bios on her medical bills. She used all of what? All her, her money, all of her livelihood on her medical bills. But there is the second word, which is zoe, which transcends that of physical, it's spiritual, it's eternal life. And so if we, if we look to what that, the verse we've just read, it says, Jesus says to them here, yeah, um, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to zoe, to, to uh, eternal life. And what Jesus is trying to say is that there is a hunger that you have that transcends your physical hunger. There is a thirst within you that goes further than just a physical thirst. There there is a need that you have that you are trying to take the bios to fill and it will fail you. 
You need something spiritual. Ultimately, what you need is you need me. And my friends, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the primary themes that we see in this book is that we have and can try to find the meaning of life and the fullness of life in things, but we will not find it. That we can try to do it in possessions and success, and we can try to do it in money and, and in people and in experiences and in wisdom or, or in, in restraint. You can try all these things, says Solomon who did it in far more excess than any of us could do, probably all of us combined could do. And yet at the end of his experience, he goes, it was meaningless. Because he was trying to find life in things rather than the giver of things. Life is not found in possessions, but rather life is found in God. My friends, you have a God-shaped hole within your heart that no material thing can fill. God himself can fill. And so Jesus says to the crowds, look guys, I'm not concerned about your stomach, I'm concerned about your hearts. You're worried about bread, but there's something bigger here. Now we, again, might look at the crowd and think they're a little foolish. How have you missed this, you silly guys? But again, I want to say that we might not be doing it for bread. I, sh I think most of us in this room are able to go home and find food in our cupboards. So bread is not necessarily the issue. But what we do try to do is find this life in other things. We try to find this life and to satisfy our hearts with substances like alcohol and drugs. We, we hope that giving our lives to uh, fleshly lust like sex outside of marriage and pornography, that that will somehow satisfy what's in our hearts. We hope that we could live up to the people's praise and their approval. And if we could just get that, that would be the thing that we need. We hope that the, it's, we could find it in people. Like if we could just date that person or, or marry that man or that woman, if we could have kids like this or our kids could be this, then we would be satisfied. We hope that we could find it in things like hobbies and, and work and that promotion or the new car or the new house. Or maybe even if I move to another country, there will be the life that I ultimately need. We, and the list can go on and on. We, we, we look in more sophisticated places but the issue is still the same. We are trying to find life in things that cannot give it to us. And Jesus looks at us this morning and says, it is in me. The life you need is not in things. It is in me. Now, you might want to call my bluff on that. But my friends, you know it from experience. You have sought in many places. You have tried the substances. You have tried the woman. You have tried the experience. You have got the money. And you think, if I could just get more or do more things, it has left you wanting, has it not? That's why you need more. That's why you have to have another experience or move on to the next spouse or move on to the next job or go to a new country because it does not give you what your heart is needing. And Jesus with compassion says, it's found in me. And so he exposes in the crowd's hearts and in ours that we are looking in places for life that we should not. And he says, it's found in me alone. But the crowd misses it. They miss it. And so he exposes the next thing in their hearts. Let's look at verses 28 and 34. He says this, Then they said to him, Why must we do, uh, so what must we do to do, be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you 
believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread. Jesus exposes their motivation. He not only exposes their need, but he exposes their motivation. They, they've missed They go, well, maybe there's another 2.0 type manner that we need to get. Tell us what must we do in order to get it. What work must we perform in order that we might get what we want? You see, they don't want Jesus. They want what Jesus can give them. Their motivation for seeking Jesus is not because they want Jesus, but because of what Jesus can give them. That's why we see in verse 28, they ask the question, what must we do? What must we do to get it, Jesus? What work must we perform? How can we unlock this extra blessing that you can give us? We don't want you. We want you to be the mediator. We want you to be the vending machines. Which buttons do we need to push? How can you be our genie so that we might be able to get the things that we want for you? They want to barter with God. They're not coming to him because they want him, but they're coming to him because of what they can get. And what strikes me about this is that they were seeking Jesus. It says they sought him the next day. They woke up, and it wasn't like today where you could just go onto Twitter or Facebook and there wasn't an app that you could just see Jesus had checked into the local coffee shop. Let me go rock up there. They wake up and he's not there. And they seek, they look, they search, old-fashioned style. The country's wide, but they look for him. And if that was today, if we saw a move of people looking for God like that, we would go, praise the Lord. But Jesus looks at their motive for seeking and says, you do not seek me because you want me but because of the benefits you can get from me. Oh, friends, how dangerously close we can get to this line. That we can come to church, play the part, read our Bibles, sing the songs, go to Bible study, not because we want Jesus, because of the benefits he can give me. That we could have come this morning hoping that if we arrive and do this, maybe he will just bless my business. That if we come together as a couple, and I know our marriage is on the rocks, maybe God would just make, fix my marriage. He could just do that for me. That would be great. That if I could come, maybe my kids would turn out to good moral citizens. Or, or you know, maybe if I could do this, the sickness that I have, he will, he will, he'll be able to heal me of it. Now, don't hear me wrong. Jesus cares about those things. He cares about your marriage. He cares about your finances. He cares about your children. He cares about your health. We see that in the, in, in, in the text that Jesus feeds the 5,000 because he loves them. He takes care of their physical needs. But hear and see what the text is showing. Jesus cares more about your relationship with him than he cares about your physical need. He cares more about do you love him and know him and have found life in him than he cares about your marriage. He does. And the danger is that we can be motivated for getting things from God rather than getting God himself. 
We can be motivated by our guilt and hoping that this coming here will take it away. Motivated by self-righteousness and motivated because of what others might think. But yet we can come for all those reasons and never taste and never eat of this Jesus. Jamin Roller, who preached on this text and also preached on the wrong motivations, was a great help to me in the sermon. He says this about it. He says, look, if, if this is us, then it will manifest itself in our lives in a very specific way. If we are in this for the benefits and not for Jesus, then it will, there will be a disparity between our public appearance of our relationship with God and the private reality of it. We will talk a lot about God, but we won't talk to God. We will talk a lot about God's word, but don't read God's word. Believing that what matters most is what everyone else says about us in the crowd instead of what God says about us in the quiet. Look, it may be easy for us to fool a lot of people, but God is no fool. He is no fool. What will happen is that wanting the benefits of Christianity, but not wanting the Christ of Christianity, wanting things from Jesus, but not wanting Jesus, that may change your schedule. It may change my schedule, but it won't change my heart. Our friends, and what Jesus wants ultimately from us is that we would be people who come because we want him. You see, friends, life is found not in the gifts, but in the giver of the gifts. And the, the call of Jesus for us today is he's saying, come and have me. Life is found in me. And the question I have for you is, why are you motivated to be here this morning? Do you want the all-powerful God who can sustain you and give you all that you need, or do you want something he can give you? Because if you want something you can give you, you're going to miss out ultimately on the life he has promised. And he says with compassion, don't want what I can give. Want me. Want me. It's about a relationship with Jesus. The next thing he exposes in the crowd is their, elite, uh, their allegiance, their, their alliance, their allegiance with him. He says this in verse 35. He says, look to them. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And what happens, what we see in the rest of this chapter, is that this is really the end of it. They have a big conversation and debate about the statement that Jesus has made. They, this is where hard lines are drawn here by Christ. And he says to the crowd, you either come and you get me or you go and get the other thing. What do you want? Do you want me or do you want the bread that you are looking for? And Jesus draws hard lines and tells us that we need to come and take him. To We cannot serve two masters, essentially. We can serve Jesus or we can serve the other thing, but we cannot have both. And for the crowd, this is what they are saying. Well, this is too hard for us to hear. This is too hard for us to accept and they walk away because Jesus is saying, the bread that you have in your hand, you can have that or you can have me. And they wanted Jesus as long as bread came first. They were willing to make that guy king. But when Jesus says, no, you can just have me, just me, they look at the bread in their hand and they go, we can't do that. And they walk away and turn from him and never walk with him again. Friends, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
Jesus plus something equals nothing. We can want Jesus and want something else, but Jesus says, no, 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 I am alone and the master of your life. I am alone the king of your life. It is me and me alone. There is a hard line that is drawn here, and the crowd walks away. They miss this Jesus right in front of them. In 2008, my grandfather and I headed off to Cape Town. We had a life-saving competition that was happening in Bloberg, um, SA Champs. And so we headed off and we stayed with my uncle in Hout Bay. And one of my main events was paddling. I did a lot of paddling back then. And so we made sure we took our skis with us and we hopped on the water and we headed out on the Hout Bay Beach. And then we went along, um, what's that, Chapman's Peak. We went along all the way along Chapman's Peak, just in stretching the arms, stretching the muscles, just warming up, and just enjoying God's beautiful creation and chatting. And we headed across Chapman's Peak for quite a while until it was time to turn around, and we turned back. And then what we were going to do is we we're going to cross, cross across the bay, get to the middle of the bay, and then cut back in, and that would be our paddle over. And as we were crossing the bay, we saw a splash. And uh, there's a ton of seals out in Hout Bay area. And so we just thought it was a seal. So we thought, let's go see it. And we started paddling towards it. And as we were heading towards this splash area, my grandfather looks at me, goes, Joseph, which he doesn't call me, but he goes, Joseph, don't panic. Great white, don't splash. A massive great white the size of our ski had come up to see what we were as we were just as inquisitive as it was, rolled on its side, looked at us with its big eye, dipped down and started turning. To which the idea, the real, what you want to do is, do you want to sprint as fast as you can? But don't do that because there's parts of you make it splashing and look like you're in a panic. So we picked up speed slowly until we were sprinting and I was about to enter a competition and I was super fit and I looked at my grandfather and said, I call him Buds, I said, Buds, I'm going. He said, don't worry, buddy, you're not leaving me behind. And so we both were sprinting in, and, and Hut Bay doesn't have many waves, but we caught a wave in, and, and we came, and that ski went right up onto the beach, and you pretty much like tiptoe on the water, and you pull it out. Didn't, I lived in Hut Bay two years later. I did not go into that water again. But I tell you all of that because I didn't see that shark the day, that day. My grandfather did an old man of the sea who had seen many sharks before, but tells me how big it was. But I saw the splash I saw the results of the effects on his face. I saw his concern. I felt the emotion of fear within me. It changed the trajectory of my day and my week. So many in Bloberg was scary later. I started going quicker than I had before. I was different as a result, but I did not see him. I missed it. Four meters away from me in crystal clear water, I did not see it. And the crowd is like that. They had seen the effects of Christ. They have saw his miracles. They had felt the emotions. They had changed parts of the way they were doing things, and yet they missed Jesus. And friends, I'm afraid that many of us come into this building for a long time, and when Jesus says to us, I am the bread of life, all you need is me, that we hold on to the bread in our hands and we go, I just don't know I want this. And when he says, and he draws hard lines, you can have me, and in me there is life. That we will look at the bread and go, but, but actually this relationship that I have is far more important. I can't, I, can't, I can't let it go, Jesus. 
the substance that I'm taking, I just, I just, it's too hard to let go. That, that the, the, my career direction is, it's too hard. My dreams, this, the sin, it is, it is too hard. And, and like the crowd, we go, how can we listen to this? And like the rich young fool who was saddened by the request of Christ, we go away sad, but yet we miss out on Jesus. Right there, but yet we miss out. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know that all those other breads that you hold on to will break you. They will fail you. They will disappoint you, and you know it. Are you putting your trust in people? Don't. It's unfair on them, and people can't live up to the expectation. Those substances, the high, will disappear. The career never goes the way you want to, and you always want more. It will fail you. It will break you. But the promise of the bread of life is that he will not break you, but he was rather broken for you. He died for you. He took on your sin so that you might be made whole. And the request from Christ with compassion before you is come to me and eat of me. For in me there is life. That other thing you're holding on to, get rid of it. Come to me. And there's three responses that we see in this text of different types of people. And the question is, what response are we going to have? The first is that of the crowds. They can't accept what Jesus has and they walk away. Is that you today? Are you going to walk away? The second we haven't read this morning, but it's in chapter verse 70 and 71, the last two verses. It's talking about Judas. It says, did I not choose you, said Jesus? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the 12 who was going to betray him. And what strikes me about Jesus, Judas is mentioned eight times in the Gospel of John. This is the first time it's mentioned. But what strikes me about, about Judas is he looked like the 12. He was just like them. To a point that when Jesus is about to die on the very last day, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they look around the table and they can't figure out who it would be. They know it wasn't themselves, but who was it? He smelt like them, looked like them, sounded like them, did the things like them, so much so that they could not know it was that man. And friends, we can play the parts, but not yet know Jesus. Judas sat under the ministry of Jesus and all the opportunity of it. And the question to you today is, are you going to stay, but yet not taste? The offer is don't just look the part. Come and taste and understand and enjoy. And the last one is that of Peter. He responds after thousands have left. I'm sure the pressure of doing the same would have been massive. And Jesus asks. He doesn't demand. He asks of them, what are you going to do? Are you going to go too? And may this be the cry of our hearts this morning. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life, eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Have your hearts been opened this morning to know there is life only in Jesus. May, may we ring, may our hearts ring like Peter say, Lord, where can we go? We have tried, we have gone, but everything else has failed us other than Jesus. Those are our three options this morning. The question is, what are you going to do? Jesus is asking, are you going to go? 
How are you going to test? Would you, would you mind bowing your heads and, and closing your eyes? There's been a lot that's been said this morning. I want to just ask you, what is the Lord saying to you? If you had your hands open and you could picture the thing that might be in your hands that might stop you from following Christ, what is it? Is he, is he asking you? Is he asking you to choose between this and that? Is it a relationship, a career? Is it your health? Is it, is it a substance? Is it money? Are it your dreams? What is it in your hands that Jesus is saying, choose me? And may you this morning, whatever it may be, may you pray in your hearts and say, Lord, I hold on to this, but in you and you alone there is life, so I lay it down. Is it that someone's approval? Lay it down. Is it a sin? Lay it down. And would you just say in your heart as well, Lord, we have believed there is eternal life in you and you alone. May I have it. May I taste it. May I see. Lord, not an easy word to listen to this morning, but... It's about life here. And you've had compassion on us in speaking to us by the power of your Spirit. And we pray, Lord, this morning that you would move mightily within us. That you would help us to shout aloud like Peter, where else could we go for you alone have eternal life? You alone are what we need. You alone speak the words that we need. And so, Lord, may we follow you. May we be a people that realize that nothing else can give us what we need but you alone. Then we may be a people that seek you because of who you are, not what we can get from you. May we cast aside everything that would hinder us from doing so for the glory of Christ, we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Have a great morning, everyone. If you want some prayer, We would be up here. We would love to pray for you. Otherwise, it's a fantastic day outside. Enjoy some coffee and some fellowship, and uh, we'll see you next week.